This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Mathilde Narduzzi, an editor here at the TLS, and I'm joined as ever by Lucy Dallas. Lucy, last hello. week. Hello. Um, last week, I, uh, trying to sound cool and casual, asked you what's new, and you replied alarmingly by telling me about a 2,500 year old olive tree that may have witnessed the Battle of Salamis in 480 AD. Is there, and I asked this cautiously, Anything you'd like to bring to my attention this week? Well, first of all, that it, that makes me sound very unhelpful, doesn't it? When you said, what's <laughs> Sabotage. new? Sabotage. And I said, you know, tell you about something really old. And second of all, I think I'd better say I didn't know about the olive tree until I read A.E. Stallings in the TLS. I wish I had known it, but I, I didn't know. It's something I learned. Um, tell you what, how about something new? I, just to be, you know, to answer last week's question... Um, because I watched the uh, new Netflix film Enola Holmes. In, and Enola, for those of you that don't know, is, of course, Sherlock and Mycroft Holmes's little sister. And it's very jolly, I have is to say. Is it good, though? I, I, is it good? Yes. I thought it was really <laughs> the, the central uh, actress, she was in Stranger Things, I think, which I don't know, but I know people love it. Yes, yeah, she's brilliant. And she does quite a lot of fourth wall breaking as she turns around and makes faces at the camera. And the and Sherlock Holmes is Superman. So it took me a while to think of him as Sherlock Holmes. I haven't actually seen him as Superman, but I think of him more as Superman than Sherlock Holmes. Anyway, it's jolly. And I would really recommend it, actually. I thought it was Thank good. You. That's quite and a contrast with last week's um, suggestion. It is, yes. <laughs> It is. And they had a sort of publicity thing with it where they were talking about um, not fictional. I was thinking about fictional sisters of, of you know, famous writers. Shakespeare's and also, sister and so on. Yeah, exactly. Shakespeare's sister, who did have a sister, but Virginia Woolf conjured up what her yeah. life might have been like. And they were highlighting sisters of, of um, like, Charles Dickens's sister. Oh, Francis. Yeah, I didn't know about Did you know about her? Yeah, I mean, a little bit. Not very much. Certainly not as much as I know about Charles Dickens. Funny yes, that. quite. But but apparently she was she was the talented one. Apparently, she was the one they sent to school. She was the one they had hopes for. And also, um, they were talking about Mozart's sister because she was older than him, and she was originally the one I think who she she was the prodigy in the beginning. I think in the beginning he would play concerts with her, and then um, and after a bit, I'm not sure whether it became clear that that he was really good, <laughs> or whether it was just that she was of an age where you know you didn't do that anymore. I mean, I suppose that would be a kind of a, a, a precursor to the whole, uh, you know, as actors age, um, there are fewer roles for, for the mature woman. So maybe Mozart's sister sort of suffered an earlier uh, case of that. But very early, because basically you weren't allowed to be a working musician, really, right. I think, basically. Um, and the other person I thought of was Dorothy Wordsworth, who is mm. now, you know, now a, a better known neglected sister, as it were. Yeah. So, so that's, you know, that's what I've been thinking about. And I suppose if people knew about other um, sisters of writers who deserve to be known in their own right or sisters you know oh, they could write in they could that's what I'm going to say to. okay yes <laughs> they could tell let's us let's do that <laughs> excellent <laughs> well, well yes write in or, t or tweet or, or whatever there are many many ways of doing this 
Yeah, people who've been overlooked by their um, celebrated brothers. I'm still um, very interested to know what people are reading. Um, I've had two responses uh, this week uh, that I would like to point to, purely because they give a sense of range, much like Lucy's range, um, <laughs> um, during the build-up to the US presidential elections. Sarah Hoffman tells me that she is taking herself back to the classics and reading Plato's Republic and Dante's Divine Comedy. Uh, meanwhile, David in Finland says that he has been engrossed in Darren Caulfield's Tales from the Colony Room, uh, which we reviewed a while back, in fact, I remember. Um, it's a history of the infamous private members drinking club in Soho, which is probably some people's idea of Inferno, um, presided over for most of its life by the appositely named Muriel Belcher. Uh, David also pointed out, responding to our discussion last week about Agatha Christie's novels as chronicles of their age, that the poet and critic William Empson used to enjoy detective novels not for the whodunit puzzle, but rather to see if, through his famous close reading, he could deduce from the evidence within the book's pages alone the exact year of the book's publication, which sounds a bit like New Criticism's answer to Cluedo. Um, I could be persuaded that it, it could, there could be a game in this somewhere, I don't really I know how say, you open it out to the floor, though. Which is more fun, though, doing a very, very close reading to guess a game publication or having a game of Cluedo? It's a well, close I think, call. Well, I think horses for courses, Lucy Dallas. Yes, fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> so if you would like to indulge our nosiness and let us know what you're reading and why, please do. Also, if you are in the business of making games, drop us a line. Email me or find us on Twitter at the TLS or me, at Thea underscore Linarduzzi. And if you're hovering between books, not yet sure where to land next, perhaps this week's show will point the way. Coming up, the TLS's history editor, David Horsepool, will join us to take us through a couple of pieces from this week's issue, including two micro-histories of slavery and emancipation and the remarkable story of Henrietta Wood. And we'll hear from the poet Fiona Benson, whose collection Vertigo and Ghost, published last year, won the Forward Prize. She will read us a moving new poem, Androgeus. But first, we're joined by our classics editor, Mary Beard, who has reviewed Strange Antics, a history of seduction, for which the author Clement Knox has valiantly plundered this bewildering, exciting and dangerous grey zone of agency, his words, but emerges with only part of the story. Mary Beard joins us on the line now to fill us in. Hello, Mary. Hello. Hello. <laughs> um, in these days of remote recordings, I do think people like to be able to kind of picture a scene. Can you tell us where you're talking to us from, Mary? Ah, I'm talking from my study at home, um, uh, which is completely lined with books. Uh, but behind me is a late 19th century bust of the poet Sappho. How about that? Oh, perfect. I feel if the pandemic period, if the pandemic period ever ends, we can perhaps mark it by issuing some kind of prize for the most, the most unusual or kind of against the odds setup, precariously balanced on some books or, or whatever. I'd just like to say that's a very classy setup, Mary. It is. With books with uh, Sappho behind you. I'm looking at a stormtrooper where I am. So okay. you win. <laughs> I've also got a cardboard cutout of the uh, Roman Emperor Caracalla, you know, so it's, it's, um, you know, it's, it, it's not all high culture. <laughs> I'm, I'm sitting here just for the completeness of this. I'm sitting here looking at last week's birthday cards. One of them says, barking mad birthday. <laughs> so, oh, just a happy, little insight. Happy birthday for last week. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, right. On to more important things, I think. Um, I suppose the first thing to do with this one is to pick at this slippery term, seduction. Uh, how does Clement Knox pin it down? Well, I, I think in some ways not very, not entirely satisfactorily. He's got a very big subject. He makes a brave attempt to hit, and actually, he's a a real winner. It's his first book, and he's a, a real winner at telling you a good story, whether it's seduction or not. I think the problem is that the, the word seduction is going to defeat anybody. Seduction in the eyes of one is, um, you know, aggressive assault in the eyes of other. And I, I, I'm never quite sure how, how useful a term it is. I mean, I think it's useful to think about its problems. But when you call a book, Strange Antics, a history of seduction, I think we're bound to end up feeling a bit dissatisfied. I mean, essentially, it, it does, it always has to do with, I mean, yes. an overcoming yeah. of resistance, and this can involve various degrees of, uh, of violence. But 
And you point out that in the Latin, it doesn't carry the kind of the default sexual dimension that it does for us now. No, it's to kind of move off course, really. And I think that, I mean, Knox, he's a sophisticated writer in all kinds of ways. And he, and you know, he is, you know, interested in what makes something a, a good seduction or a bad seduction. You know, you know how power is um, uh, delineated. You know, you know whether um, it is seduction uh, for a positive or a negative end or whatever. But I, I mean, I, I did think, and I and I know you'll say that I was bound to think this. But I think that unless you actually go back a bit further than him, I mean, basically, this is a book about the Enlightenment and later. Unless you go back a bit further than him, you don't, I think, start to see um, the origins of the complexity of the term, really. And um, uh, he has a, a passing reference to antiquity and to Ovid. You know, but there you are, um, you know, back in the first century BCAD, and you've got the Roman poet Ovid writing a handbook of seduction and writing his, you know, in a sense, his quotes greatest work, The Metamorphoses, which is one story of seduction or rape, if you prefer, after the next. And I think somehow it is in antiquity that you 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 see very clearly uh, all the the big issues actually about the how problematic the term is. The handbook of seduction is it the the Ars Amatoria? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And the the thing that I I knew very little about it was just reading about it. The thing that struck me uh, straight away as extraordinary is that he has he has a volume of for men saying how to get women, doesn't he? Yeah. And then a volume, I think, on how to behave. Is that right? While, while you're together. Yeah. yeah. And then the third volume is for women on how to get men. Yes. And I'm, I'm not saying that he was... Um, uh, that, he was, that he was treating them equally, but he was looking at the subject at least from both sides. Yeah, uh, and that's why I think some of the, the stuff written um, in Rome is, is interesting. Now, you know, nobody, you know, you rightly say, Lucy, nobody's going to say that, um, that somehow Ovid is even-handed here, you know, and you, and you don't certainly look to the ancient world for kind of even-handed gender politics. But, I mean, in some ways, one of the reasons that he's so subversive is that he can flip the coin. He can make you see this uh, from the other point of view. What is it, you know, what does a woman do to you, right? Now, the Ars Amatoria might be, we, it, this whole thing is still a bit shrouded in mystery, it might be um, one of the things that ended Ovid up in exile, right? Um, so um, if that's the case, then I think we, we do get a sense of the, of the edginess of this and the, and I think part of the edginess is the idea that that sexual agency is not only male I suppose and that's a pretty revolutionary and radical thing to say um, <laughs> still is <laughs> but would there have been the same kind of moral framework around it um, going going way back I mean I'm thinking I was just reading this story a short story by um, the Latvian writer Nora Ixtener, um, about Europa, you know, about Europe, Europa, the, the product um, in the myth of a seduction or rape. I mean, it seems to me that ancient stories are full of rapes or seductions, if there, if there is a difference there. So I'm wondering, I mean, was there, was there a kind of a, was there a moral framework there or not? Mm, uh, it, there isn't a moral framework like we have. And I think that um, this is talking about rights and wrongs and rules that are, that, are not defined by Christianity. And so, in a sense, I think you go to Ovid and you perhaps, you you look for traces of what we think of as sexual morality. And when you don't find it, because in a sense, the Judeo-Christian tradition is still very strong in our own um, versions of that, you kind of think there isn't any morality there. And I think that would be a mistake, but I think there's morality really of power and agency and that comes out I think or it has come out very clearly over my lifetime of you know on and off studying of it I mean, that's to say when I was a student we were taught 
to speak about what Ovid was describing in in you know in a very almost bowdlerized way. I mean, we use, we never used the word ravishing in real life, but when it came to Ovid's Metamorphoses, it was one ravishing after the next, which was, in a sense, preventing us seeing this as rape or wondering about the difference between seduction and rape. And I, I think now what's very interesting about Ovid's work and the students I teach do get very anxious about reading Ovid's rapes, actually. And, you know, th that produces a kind of, oh, my God, snowflake sort of um, response. You know, they can't even read one of the greatest works of literature ever because it's, you know, dot, dot, dot. You know, we can all fill that in. Uh, and I, I can find that annoying, actually, because I think what Ovid is asking you to do is look very hard and face up to some of these issues about rape and seduction. But I think that in some ways I feel quite sympathetic with the students because they have seen these books for sort of what, what they arguably are. Right? Now, when it, it, our, our vocabulary of ravishing and seduction, it was partly a way of denying what was going on in these texts. And I think you can't really complain when students see, uh, see that very clearly. Um, you can't then complain when they sort of object to it. <laughs> so it, it's a very good, I think, Ovid's writing in general is a very good bellwether, I think, for some of our own, the complexities of our own moral attitudes. Well, that book, Ancient History of, of Seduction or, or Ovid's Rape, has, has yet to be written. Uh, the book that we do have, um, to be fair, uh, to Clement Knox, uh, is, uh, is a modern history. I mean, it probably yeah. would have saved us a lot of uh, a lot of time if he had put the word modern in, in the subtitle, but it, it starts with the publication of Pamela by uh, yeah. Samuel Richardson. So in 1740, why start there? Um, well, in a sense, it's, it's for him a, a rare example of a perfect seduction narrative because um, the basic plot ends up with the man getting the girl but the girl having reformed the man, right? So, uh, as it were, it is an apparently happy ending. Most seduction narratives are not win-win. It <laughs> doesn't take much reading in Western literature to see that. Um, and so Pamela is very, very interesting and very rare, even though at the time, um, you know, although we think of it now as having been a, an extraordinary successful novel and it you know, it was, it was a huge bestseller. You know, there were still people, uh, critics around who saying, you know, this grubby little girl from below stairs gets the man. You know, so it didn't, uh, it didn't always appear to be a win-win narrative, but that's certainly how we, how we read it. One of the stories that you, um, that you pluck out from, from his many is um, the story of Colonel Francis uh, Chartery. Um, <laughs> I don't know if that's how he would have pr pronounced it, but um, it yeah. sounds like, it sounds, it sounds a very interesting one. He was charged with having raped his, his maid. Is that right? Yes, I think. I mean, it's, he's, he has um, uh, many uh, offences that have to be taken into consideration. Um, he's a, he's a, a renowned bounder, he's charteris, I think we say him, charteris. And, and, and the public, basically when he died, the public threw dead cats and dogs into his grave. And the reason I suppose I'm, I find this interesting is I wonder if there's not there's some solace to be found here. You know, the fact that the public took against him, there's something heartening about the public choosing to side with a poor maid whose voice was presumably yes. not heard at all yes. versus this wealthy and powerful lech. Yes, and, you know, a, a very extreme version of Lech. I suspect there was quite a lot of maids whose assaulters would not have found opprobrium amongst the um, the observers. But Chartres was a renowned, uh, you know, rapist, basically. And, I mean, I think it's it's a useful corrective for a view that we often have, which is that, you know, back in the old days, nobody minded about that kind of behaviour. I mean, yes, they did sometimes. It wasn't, it wasn't just that people said anything goes for the men, that's fine. But I think there's a, there's a kind of sad side to this story in Knox's book because Chartres's daughter, Janet, remains loyal to this guy. And Knox says something like, and so she does no service to the cause of British women, right, because she sticks up for her dad. And, you know, I thought 
gosh, you know, women get ticked off either way, don't they? You know, either they stick up for some for their dads, and you know, are now a couple of hundred years later, you know, told off for that, or nobody much minds about what they're suffering. You know, there's a kind of there's a sense that uh, you know women are trapped in this story in all kinds of different ways. I think is it also you talk in your piece about the he talks about um, passion and reason. Um, and it reminded me of that old idea of the crime of passion, which is not actually that old. It, it, it was only um, it's only stopped being used, certainly in some places in the late 20th century, I think. And the idea that, you know, that a man could kill his wife. I know it worked yeah. both ways. It worked for a, yeah. hus- for a wife could kill her husband who was adulterous as well. But I'm, I think the numbers are basically that the, the man could kill his wife if, if she was found being adulterous because he was he was sort of carried away and he was provoked in some way by it so that you would get a lighter sentence yeah. do you think yeah. those things are linked um yeah yeah in all kinds in all kinds of different ways but i think you know i i think that that he puts a lot of stress on the conflict between reason and passion um but he's 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 pretty shifty about whether he thinks, you know, which which he thinks is the good. Is it is it reason or passion? You know, and just as you you think, look, okay, we're brought up with a, you know, with a sense that a, a crime of passion, for better or worse, tended to let you off the hook in a certain way. Um, you then discover that he thinks that that it's rational seduction that's fine, and I, I found that bit quite. I, I, I'm sure his. His emphasis on r- rationality and passion as being also something which is really at play in discussions of seduction and assault. Um, but I, I found it quite hard to pin down quite why he leapt, which <laughs> quite why he approved slightly of one and not the other at different times. Um, you know, and it's confusing, isn't it? You know, and seduction. You know, the reason why it's a good subject as well as a bad subject is it makes you confront that. But it's pretty confusing in the end if you want to try to, to you know, pin it down. And I suppose I did end up having enjoyed Knox's book, but still thinking, well, so what, what did he, what was he telling me he thought seduction was? Right? And I wasn't sure I had an answer. It, it, it's, it sounds like a, a productive point from which to start so presumably more books more books to follow please uh, certainly more discussion uh, briefly mary um on a parting note to change to change the topic completely now oh no um, <laughs> oh no oh no we can't do that no we can and we're going to uh, we have an essay in this week's paper by <laughs> joe moran i don't think you've read it yet but no. the gist of it is um he's talking about the university as a place uh, a place of discussion of, of mm, precisely yeah. the sorts of things that we're just we've been discussing yeah. now uh, and all the things that remote teaching uh, and learning can't provide I'm just wondering how things are with you at Cambridge how you're feeling about going into the the, the new academic year now I'm feeling deeply conflicted and um, uh, I'm lucky because I'm on research leave this term so uh, I'm standing a bit on the outside looking at my colleagues and uh, I don't know what I think the right answer is. I mean, I up to a few weeks ago, I thought that we have to be as much business as usual as we can. Um, since I've looked at what's happening in the States and then in other universities whose term started earlier here, I'm becoming less convinced that um, the business as usual so far as we can approach is going to be workable, you know, and I feel I, I feel extraordinarily sorry for the students, and I, I I just don't see what their options are. I mean, people say, um, look, you know, why don't they take a year off? You know, and I'm not sure that you know that universities can can stand that, and that the economic impact on universities is is hard to also there aren't there lots of there are quite a lot of subjects where they they don't want you to take a year off no they don't want you to take they, a year off. In, in the sciences particularly yeah. i think yeah. uh, it's it's not encouraged at all but what suppose you did what would you do 
I mean, you know, it's all very well to think, oh, are they, why don't you have a gap year? What do you do with a gap year in the middle of a pandemic? Yeah. Uh, well, Mary Bid, thank you. Thanks very much for talking to us. Thank you, especially for accommodating uh, our curveball at the end. <laughs> well, no, that's fine. I have to say, I think that, um, you know, seduction is probably an easier, difficult concept to get your head around than what to do with universities for the next 30 years. So, <laughs> Gosh, well, that's saying something. Thank you very much, Mary. <laughs> pleasure. The pleasure. Still to come, a poem by Fiona Benson and David Horsepool on stories of slavery and revolution. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm told by our producer, Ben, that by the time this episode comes out, 2020 will have seen its National Poetry Day on October the 1st, to which I give the merry response that pretty much every day is Poetry Day for many of us. And certainly today, no reason is needed beyond the beauty of the poem itself for us to invite Fiona Benson on to read us one of her latest, Androgeous. Fiona, thank you for joining us. Thank you. And without further ado, let's hear your poem, please. Androgeus. I died in Athens, thinking of my mother. Or was I on my way to Thebes? Difficult to say, this is a slow, forgetting place. There was a competition, I had won something. A crown, a coin, a paper wreath. Then stabbing pain, a bull's two horns, or a bar-tab brawl, or an Athenian lover I hadn't treated well, daggering my lower abdomen. Can it have been my father's white bull, the one he bathed and preened? It doesn't matter now. After the wound came dying, fast, then slow, slow, slow. I had doctors and staunchings and stitches and fevers, Time to dream about the sun-scorched cliffs of Crete, the sweetness of the singing crickets, the way the time would twist and bake, how my lover's skin smelt of it, how, when I took him in my mouth, he'd grip my hair and groan and move me to his pleasure 
and forget I was the prince. Afterwards, I'd lie with my cheek on his warm chest and watch the fish shoal in the water far below, every stone and crab's claw, every sea urchin's thorn delineated. There came a peace like that at last, when everything seemed clear and calm and bright, and I was sitting on the warm stone step with my mother, eating a dish of cold yoghurt laced with honey, and she was singing a soft and faraway song in her other tongue. She laughed and mussed my hair and blew on my nape to cool my neck, and then I died. That was Fiona Benson reading her poem, Androgeus, published in this week's TLS. Uh, Fiona, thank you so much for joining us. That was beautiful. It is a tragedy of the history of slavery that we often get to know the lives of the enslaved through the evidence left by their enslavers. So says Manisha Sina, a professor of American history in the TLS this week. She writes about the complex picture of slavery, abolition and capitalism from two points of view, by looking at the life of a slave trader and that of an eventually emancipated slave. And we also explore the life of a heroic figure, sometimes known as Black Spartacus, the revolutionary Toussaint Louverture. With us to talk these through is the TLS's history editor, David Horsepool. David, many thanks for joining us. That's absolutely fine. Nice to be here. Can you tell us first, please, about this, about what we know about the slave trader William Williams, whose life is detailed in one of the books discussed here? Yeah, um, Manisha Sinha's reviewed two books, one by Jeff Foray, um, that one's called William's Gang, a notorious slave trader and his cargo of black convicts. And what it's about is this man, William Williams, who ran a slave trading operation out of the District of Columbia, so kind of Washington, D.C., and he imprisoned slaves and then attempted to sell them across America, even after the domestic slave trade had been made illegal in a kind of um, compromise ruling in, in 1850, which attempted to keep slavery alive in America and sort of hold off what eventually became the American Civil War. Unfortunately, the the way he operated, I, I, I might be wrong about this, but it seems that he it was not exceptional, was it? Even I mean, he was breaking laws and going in and out of jail, but that that's what happened. Yes, I get that impression uh, from Manisha's review that this was a very kind of under the wire world, and she writes about fly by night local and state banks whose currency became valueless once they went under. And it was this kind of world of nods and winks. And uh, for example, William Williams, in the episode that's recounted in the book, he claimed to be taking his gang to the Republic of Texas, a kind of separate jurisdiction. But he attempted to sell his property in Mobile, which is Alabama, and then in New Orleans. So clearly people were kind of conniving at this, uh, breaking these laws. And even when they held Williams to the letter of the law, it didn't really do the people who'd uh, been enslaved or kidnapped quite often any good because once the case became a disputed one, these poor uh, victims, rather than being freed awaiting the result, would be imprisoned and, in fact, put to work. So even while their status was being discussed, they were still being treated as slaves. It's not a part of the story that we hear that much about, the kind of the, the domestic slave trade. We tend to focus on the transatlantic slave trade. Well, that, yeah, absolutely. And yet I was thinking about this. I mean, that whole notion of being sold down the river that is what that means. It's um, the idea of being a, a slave in the kind of middle of the country, the upper south, and being sold down to the sort of cotton kingdom in, in the deep south. And that's how a terrible situation was made even worse for, for the, the victims of it, in that their families were broken up. He died, of course, in, in the course of being sold down the river. And um, as Manisha Sinha says, its its numbers exceeded the number of Africans brought through the Atlantic 
slave trade to the British North American mainland. So it's an extraordinary part of the story if we forget it because it's as as big and as bad really as the middle passage and you know all the attendant horrors of it it seems kind of self-evident that no two countries went through slavery in the exact same way as well you know no two legacies are going to be exactly the same it seems i mean the idea of focusing on the domestic trade also will shed more light more more concentratedly on the political and legal structures around slavery that were particular Abs- to the US. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I think I think as well, another point that Sinha makes is that it calls into question a kind of um, slightly more old-fashioned, but, but it was quite a kind of powerful historiographical um, current that tried to um, not exactly justify slaveholders, but portray, sort of humanise uh, the ones in the in the South who ran plantations and in, uh, in whose interests it was for their slaves to be healthy and to be able to work their land and so on. And so there was such a thing as kind of patrician slave owners, which rather discounts because the idea being that they couldn't kind of buy new ones because the slave trade itself had been abolished. But actually if it was going on under the wire anyway, and if it was such a massive thing before it was abolished. That again kind of puts another, as usual with the story of slavery, it just adds another horrific um, part to it. And on the other side of the the people who were enslaved, um, what do we Mm. learn from the other book? What do we know about the life of of Henrietta Wood? Uh, It's just won the Pulitzer Prize. it's kind of my, another micro history. So it, it concentrates on this woman, Henrietta Wood, but possibly kind of given away even in the title, Sweet Taste of Liberty, A True Story of Slavery and Restitution in America. One thing you notice there is that the name of the, the person who is the subject ostensibly of this true story, Henrietta Wood, isn't mentioned. And I'm sure that's not a deliberate decision on the part of the author, but it seemed to me almost like a subconscious recognition that these stories are very hard to uncover from the experiences of the person who was at the heart of them themselves. So, for example, as Manisha Sinha unfolds in, in the Caleb McDaniel book, one of the figures who most dominates the book is Zebulon Ward, a man who tried to buy Henrietta Wood. Um, and, and she only emerges, actually, when she was able to bring her own case against, because she was illegally enslaved, although slavery itself was legal, she had been freed, uh, she had been emancipated by her last owner, and she was kidnapped and enslaved um, in the same way that um, the subject of uh, 12 Years a Slave, Solomon Northrup, was. Um, so uh, she actually brought a case against her kidnappers to sue for restitution and in, in in addition to your point there about the title about henrietta wood not being mentioned there it's 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 true that also zebulon ward gives the book its first line doesn't he zebulon ward of arkansas liked to say that he was the last american ever to pay for a slave uh, and it's yeah. the, the, the like to say that gives you the, the chills yeah uh, it, and it it does rather sound as if the author's hoping that someone's going to buy the film rights because that would be a pretty good chilling opening line to any any film um and you know it's it's really difficult for these for historians who are interested in these subjects to uncover untold stories there are people like solomon northup who wrote their own stories um and we have examples of that on this side of the Atlantic as well, but they're pretty well known to students and those who are interested in in the stories of slavery. So finding these, you know, considering this was a, uh, something that affected millions of people, it shouldn't be hard to find new stories to tell. But it's very difficult to really get the source, the evidence, uh, and, and capture the voices of the people involved when a part of you know the the horror of slavery is to silence the people who were the victims of it. I suppose um, what, what one thing that we do learn about Henrietta Wood is that she was 
indefatigable because she she hung on and she sued them and she and she won her case, didn't she? She won some money, but not very much. Is that right? She won. She won two and a half thousand dollars. She'd sued for twenty thousand dollars, and Cena says it's a, a paltry sum for the now very wealthy ward who had to pay it. But that money, uh, McDaniel reveals poignantly, went a long way for her son, who acquired property and education in Chicago and for her grandchildren and descendants. So in the same way that, you know, we talk about uh, slavery as the foundation of American capitalism, this is a tiny example of, you know, the the scale, just a kind of straw in the balance in the other direction of, of someone's whole livelihood and the livelihood of their descendants being uh, based on, on this, you know, single act of restitution. And mm. both, I mean, both of the books emphasise um, this link between centuries-old failure of justice, a failure to compensate slaves, uh, and the modern mass incarceration of black people, don't they? That this idea, it's gained more yeah. and more traction over the years. It went sort of mainstream, although that's probably overstating it, in, in 2014 when there was a, a famous essay by Tanisi Coates. And then again in 2016, there was another uh, kind of a revival of interest in that idea with Ava DuVernay's documentary uh, 13th, uh, which centred on prisons and the historical racial wealth gap uh, in the US. But is is the US nearing an impasse here, do you think? I mean, in, in which the payment of reparations is, you know, it's been kicked down the road for so long, but is it now, you know, the only way to proceed? Well, it's an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, I think from an outside perspective, and, you know, we'll read Tanahisi Coates or um, the head of the National Museum of African American History and Culture, the Smithsonian, um, great newish museum there. And from the outside, it seems like what, whatever the kind of ins and outs of financial reparations might be and how, how you would decide on the numbers, as it were, uh, seems to be one thing. But the idea of a kind of moral reparation and actually saying there is some restitution to be made to us looks but it's looked for a long time like a case already made i mean you know martin luther king talked about it as a promise it was a, a bad check that the that the government had had promised them and then returned to them marked insufficient funds so we've we've known about this for a very long time from from the outside looking in you sort of think well they'll kind of come to some arrangement about it and yet there again if you look at the American political situation it doesn't look very much like that's at the top of I mean you can understand there are there are other things at the top of people's agenda but it's I mean it's very much at the bottom of 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 one side of the argument's agenda um and actually kind of forces very much denying that are more in the um are making louder noises I would say can we also turn to a great uh, inspiring leader who led his people out of slavery in the Caribbean, fighting off France, Spain and Britain along the way. Um, um, because we were also reviewing this week Sudi Hazarising's book, Black Spartacus, about the life of Toussaint Louverture. Um, David, can you tell us briefly about, about his achievements? I could probably tell you very briefly because I, I know shamefully little about Toussaint Louverture. Um, I, I want to read this book. Um, he he was 18th century uh, Haitian uh, Saint-Domingue, as, as it was called then. Um, he had been a slave, was freed, and became a great revolutionary leader and led the Haitian uh, Revolution in 1791. And, and eventually, uh, just after his death, uh, Haiti achieved independence. And he um, saw off Napoleon's armies. Uh, he was claimed later on as a kind of great figure of the Enlightenment and of the kind of revolutionary turn. Yeah, and he, um, in terms of Napoleon, he had this I mean, he was a real French revolutionary, wasn't he? He was a firm believer in Napoleon. The reason he, the, of the uprising, he was a Jacobin, I think. You know, and the, and the French Revolution yeah. said, for, for about sort of eight minutes, they said all men and women are equal and all races and creeds and everything. And then they started changing their mind and rowing back on that. But he took that and said, okay, that's what we're going to do. And then, then yeah, fought, fought against Napoleon, who presumably he felt terribly let down by, um, and then died because the French tricked him. 
I think, as far as I could tell. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. No, I mean, it, you know, is hence the, the black Spartacus kind of uh, comparison, as we all know what, what happened to Spartacus and the, the, the same sort of fate awaited uh, to saint Louverture. Yeah, that's right. He, I looked up this thing that he said he would, he'd promised to cease to live before gratitude dies in my heart, before I cease to be faithful to France. And in a way, that's a kind of classic rebels move from time immemorial is you don't say I want to overthrow the status quo you say I want to put it back to how it should be um you know rebels against my, exactly. my friends my idea of friends which to be fair Napoleon did join in with as I say for about about eight minutes yes and uh I suppose you could you could put Louverture with with a whole um raft of people who were horrified and disappointed by uh Napoleon uh, there are other another set of people who welcomed the French Revolution then were horrified and disappointed by the terror um, but there are you know the likes of um, well Beethoven springs to mind um, as someone who uh, welcomed Napoleon and then completely was appalled as he as he drew more and more power to himself um, so he, he fits into that tradition as well I think and today's biography it seems um it seems to draw together the many different strands in his life that, that you mentioned. I saw a, a French review that said it was a great work of synthesis, bringing it all together. Yeah, I get that impression. Absolutely. I think um, Alan Forrest calls it balance. It's sympathetic. So he he also uh, he, he sees him as um, all these combined things. He was a devout Catholic but he was also versed in African beliefs and body traditions. And then he was also uh, a, a, obviously a gifted um, tactician and military leader, as well as an inspiring rhetorician. So, I mean, you've got all these um, these parts to his life. I'm not sure how much of his private life emerges in any of um, the studies of him, sort of going all the way back to C.L.R. James and the people he drew on in the... 1930s but he he does retain what um Hazarin Singh calls his messianic aura I mean there is something extraordinary about about well it's it's a kind of unique case on the world stage there were of course there were black uprisings against colonial masters throughout uh imperial the imperial world not least in Jamaica for example and Barbados, but this was the the first uh, occasion on which a single leader brought together a revolution that actually achieved independence for his country. Haiti was the first independent black state. I, I believe so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, obviously, the first independent black state founded in independence from its colonial previous colonial masters. Yeah, I mean outside Africa is what I mean. And and it is, I mean, it's such an amazing story. You could imagine it made into, let's say, a rap musical. <laughs> I was just thinking it sounds very, it sounds quite similar. I mean, it's not similar to Hamilton, but, you know, you could easily, um, it's got just as much, well, it's much rich more, material, I mean, if not you, more. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, I think that's probably what's so, so extraordinary about Hamilton is on the face of it. It doesn't, it, it's not the subject, uh, the possible subject of a rap musical at all, it, you know. The story of the man who um, introduced various kind of financial tweaks to um, post-revolutionary America doesn't sound um, as if it will uh, make for a perfect rap musical. Uh, I, yes, I, I think if um, if that ha- idea hadn't been had already, this would be... I think there's a, there are various films about Toussaint Louverture, but I, I haven't seen them, so I couldn't, I couldn't comment. But I was just wondering whether you think... Um, you know, because because it is this amazing story with all these kind of rather spectacular things in it. Has 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 his story been a bit overlooked by historians at least until at least until the twentieth century? Say C. L. R. James. Yeah, I think maybe before the twentieth century, but it's kind of unsurprisingly he was taken up as a great hero. So he he kind of figures quite uh, highly in those kind of um, studies. I think maybe more. Now, he is part of a kind of mainstream understanding of 18th, 19th century history in a way that the kind of global historical turn, the kind of idea of looking at 
history, not always from this kind of Eurocentric perspective. Even if you're discussing Europeans, you you look at how um, the kind of margins as they would look at it. So I think from that point of view, he's certainly more and more studied and more and more right for study. And the only way in which um, he, he might be a sort of cautionary tale is it's sort of almost impossible not to make a hero of him. And that's always a bit of a of a worry when you're doing history is you don't want people to emerge as kind of supermen because um, it seems unlikely to be the whole truth. Yeah, I mean, that's actually, it says that the review does say that Sudhir calls him the first black superhero in the sense of presumably that he's the, he's you know, he's the first one that he, he emerges as this wonderful, powerful figure that can do everything. Yes, I mean, I suppose, you, I mean, if you mean superhero as in kind of Marvel comic superhero, the first of two, as far as I can see, um, which is a kind of another depressing thought uh, that, that he he wasn't taken up as a as a kind of popular figure in that sense, um, and um, you know black superheroes are pretty few and far between up until I think the twenty first century really, um, so you know that in that sense I think he probably is you, you could still describe him as uh, neglected or or forgotten in that um, he doesn't seem to have inspired a kind of popular take up in the way that you might expect for such a an amazing story but he is not neglected by us thank you very much for talking to us about him david not at all my pleasure is all we have time for this week our thanks go to david horsepool fiona benson and mary beard thank you for listening to this episode of the tls podcast brought to you by wireless studios and produced by ben mitchell if you liked what you heard please consider subscribing to us wherever you get your podcasts and or subscribing to the tls itself and do come back next week for more of the same although it'll only be the same in a heraclitian sense of course until next time from lucy dallas and from me goodbye Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.